0: I'm Apollo 16 astronaut Charlie Duke, the 10th man to walk on the moon. And you got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. This is The Space Show, Australia, on 88.3 Southern FM.
1: Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, Nothing So Hidden, episode three of three, The Voyage of Apollo 16. And, uh, well, we better get underway pretty quickly.
2: We'll have a lovely afternoon. Kiss the world goodbye,
3: and away we fly. Destination moon,
4: travel fast as light, till we're lost from sight. The earth is like a
1: toy balloon. Welcome to the final of our three-part series, Nothing So Hidden, the story of Apollo 16. Fifty years ago, John Young, Charlie Duke, and Ken Mattingly were being debriefed after their 10-day voyage to the Descartes region of the Moon. Young and Duke had descended to Descartes in the lunar module Orion, whilst Mattingly had continued orbiting the Moon in the command and service module Casper. Before the space age, There was an energetic debate in the scientific world as to whether the craters on the moon were caused by asteroid impacts or by volcanic activity. One of the reasons the Descartes region was chosen as an Apollo landing site was because Descartes was thought to be volcanic. Young and Duke were tasked with finding volcanic rocks. They found none. (laughs) Uh, they were almost all impact breccias. Breccias are rocks that are composed of fragments of other, older rocks. The breccias are formed by the shock of bombardment by meteorites. The shock causes heat and pressure that fuses small rock fragments from earlier impacts into new rocks. The Apollo 15 crew had found a special type of rock called anorthosite, which they dubbed the Genesis rock. Anorthosite is a type of intrusive igneous rock composed predominantly of calcium rich plagioclass feldspar. All anorthosites found on Earth consist of coarse crystals, but some samples of rock taken from the Moon are finely crystalline. It is visible as light-coloured parts of the lunar highlands. At 4 billion years, these are the moon's oldest rocks. The Apollo 16 astronauts did find two significant anorthosite rocks, one with a mass of 1.8 kilograms and which was dated at 4.36 billion years old. Well, recent Unmanned missions orbiting the moon have been able to map the rock types around the moon. It turns out that the Apollo 16 crew narrowly missed out on finding lots of anorthosite. And this feature has someone who knows about that.
5: Good morning from Hawaii. Uh, my name is Kiara Tarari-Wong. Um, I'm a third year graduate student now at the University of Hawaii. And I'm here today to talk about um, spectrometer uh, we are building that can be adapted to provide one meter resolution of polar landing sites in the thermal infrared. All right, so in order to go forward to the moon with Artemis, I want us to first take a look at the past um, with a cautionary tale and understand what could have been had we only known. When the Apollo 16 lunar module landed, it landed in between North Ray Crater and South Ray Crater the crew ventured up to North Ray Crater to take some samples, and then they traversed south about halfway to South Ray Crater. Now, what no one could have possibly known at that time was that just six kilometers away from the landing site and maybe about two, three kilometers from their furthest traverse south was that there was a field of pure anorthosite boulders, just like what Apollo 15 had brought back from Spur Crater, also known as the Genesis Rock, or 15415. But instead of just one sample of the moon's primordial crust, imagine just for a moment an entire field of anorthosite boulders, an entire field of Genesis rocks. So Apollo 16 was only six kilometers away, which to me is frustratingly close. What if we had known that there was pure anorthosite before Apollo 16 landed near South Ray Crater? And what if we had known that there was pure anorthosite before we landed on the moon for the first time? What would have changed? What would we have known? With Apollo, there was very little prior information on the composition of the surface to know of this anorthosite field. But today is different. Today, we have a lot more compositional information. So for Artemis, I asked this question. What if we knew the composition of every single boulder at a landing site at the lunar south pole? Well, for one, we could optimize mission planning. We have a lot more compositional information about the moon today from instruments like diviner M cubed multiband imager um, and soon trailblazer uh, but even those can't tell us about the composition on a human scale which is incredibly important for when you want to put astronauts on the moon however it's not that far outside of our reach of sensing capabilities uh, currently at the university of hawaii at manoa we are building a cubesat for nasa's earth science and technology office called hi or the Hyperspectral Thermal Imager, uh, and that will launch in 2021 from the International Space Station. hi TIE, without any optical redesign, the instrument onboard could be used to map rock compositions and craters as fine as three meters on the lunar surface, which would already be at a finer scale than previous missions. Now, the thermal infrared is a unique spectral range that can be used to characterize the bulk mineralogy of silicate minerals, hi Thai, the instrument onboard HI-TIE, has a spectral range of 7 to eleven and a half and a half microns with a spectral resolution of 13 wave numbers, where signatures of major moon minerals can be unambiguously identified at high spectral and spatial resolutions. hi is currently designed to fly in low Earth orbit at 400 kilometers, and it will have a spatial resolution on the ground of 60 meters per pixel. If you were to fly the same exact optics in lunar orbit at 50 kilometers, say, we could achieve a spatial resolution of six meters on the ground, uh, six meters per pixel. If we were to fly the instrument in a lunar orbit of 20 kilometers without any redesign, we could achieve a spatial resolution of three meters per pixel. Now that's even better in terms of human scale, coming in at just a little more than the height of Jack Schmidt. But this is about the limitation of the current optical system. And if we want to do better, a modest redesign would be necessary. To get something on the order of one meter per pixel, uh, a larger telescope would definitely be necessary, along with a camera detector that has a faster readout, which would require the modest technical development. But one meter is achievable under these circumstances, and most definitely on a human scale, and what we like to call um, subjection resolution. We know that the optical design can give us the spatial resolution we want, but the moon is not the same as the Earth. So can it perform under lunar polar illumination conditions? And we can investigate this by estimating the signal to noise ratio of the high-tie instrument performing at the moon. 273 Kelvin is about as cold a rock can be at this constant illumination, at the constant illumination conditions at the pole. And much higher temperatures are more likely. High-tie at various rock temperatures meets or exceeds the performance requirements necessary. With HITi's current capabilities, uh, three and six meter resolution maps of the lunar surface can be made. And with some optical redesign, one meter resolution maps of the lunar surface can also be made. This would allow for individual boulder compositions to be classified on a human scale and be incredibly useful for Artemis mission planning. Regardless, we will definitely get amazing science out of investigating the lunar south pole. But with HITi, fewer discoveries would fall through the cracks. Thank you very much.
1: And here we are in 2022 with the Artemis plan to return humans to the moon well underway. Now, it's uh, well to remember that the Apollo missions were uh, conducted in the science areas and in some of the technical support areas by people who were fresh out of college. Uh, very, very young people. And now we have the youngsters like Shara Ferrara Wong, we've just heard from. Her. She's a graduate student at the University of Hawaii picking up the mantle to get humans back to the moon.
6: Giant
1: Where, you might wonder, can you see these wonderful Apollo machines of half a century ago? Well, if you want to see the Apollo 16 lunar module, then you will need to go to the Moon. The descent stage sits proudly on Descartes, surrounded by the Apollo lunar surface experiments, the American flag and the lunar roving vehicle number two. You will remember that Orion's ascent module was supposed to be deorbited and crashed onto the moon to create a seismic signal for the seismometers that had been placed on the moon by previous Apollo crews. Orion continued orbiting for about a year before crashing into an unknown location on the moon. Now, if you find the crash site, you would find wreckage of metal and mylar scattered around. On the other hand, if the Apollo 16 service module interests you, will it burned up on entry to the Earth's atmosphere above the Pacific Ocean? The command module, which returned the astronauts to Earth, is easy to find. CASPER, as it was called, is in the Alabama Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville. With the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 16 mission approaching, the curators at the museum decided that it was time to give Casper a clean.
7: This particular command module for Apollo 16 is called Casper. So Casper the Friendly Ghost was a popular character at the time, and they just opted to use that as its name. We're cleaning the Apollo 16 spacecraft and the inside of the display case. So what we're doing for the inside of the display case is cleaning with microfiber cloths and distilled water. That way we're not introducing any chemicals that could interact badly with the surfaces of the spacecraft or anything. For the actual spacecraft itself, we're using a dusting technique that involves very soft brushes, a very specialized vacuum cleaner, and a technique where you sort of use the brush to lift the dust off of the surface and into the air and then you capture the dust with the vacuum cleaner. And this prevents you from scrubbing the surface and kind of grinding the dust into the surface or anything. So as part of regular maintenance of any artifact in the museum you want to keep sort of a regular eye on all of your objects. The time came to do that. And also it happens to be that 2022 is the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 16 mission. So it just happens to be good timing to clean it in preparation for that anniversary.
1: The museum curators also asked Christian Sutton to narrate this amusing First person story of Casper's
2: moon adventure. Sometimes if you're lucky, you get the chance to embark on the adventure of a lifetime. I had that chance 50 years ago when I was fortunate enough to carry three special astronauts to the moon and back as part of Apollo 16. My name is Casper and this is my story. John Young was to be our commander. He was a veteran astronaut of three previous space missions. There was Charlie Duke, our lunar module pilot, who was embarking on his first mission to space. And finally, there was Ken Mattingly, my pilot and the astronaut I'd spend the most time with on our adventure. This, too, would be Ken's first space mission. Apollo 16 was one of three Apollo J missions, which were intended to be deeper scientific studies of the moon. The plan was for John and Charlie to travel down to the highlands on the lunar surface between two mountains north of the crater Descartes. This area was believed to have been formed by extinct lunar volcanoes, making it an ideal location for research. As the mission drew near, time came for the crew to give me a name. They named the lunar excursion module Orion after the brightest constellation in the night sky. For me, they decided upon Casper after the friendly ghost from the then popular comic books and cartoon series. It had been said that the puffy white suits worn by astronauts looked shapeless and almost ghost-like when seen on television screens, which prompted the choice of my name. As launch day neared, I was integrated on top of a mighty Saturn V rocket and wheeled out to pad 39A at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. On the morning of April 16, 1972, the crew suited up and climbed inside. Together, we were ready to blast off. The powerful F-1 engines ignited at the bottom of the rocket, and we were on our way. I still remember the exhilarating sensation of leaving Earth's atmosphere and entering orbit. As I parted ways with the Saturn V, Ken proceeded to dock me with Orion, and we flew toward the moon. It took us three days to travel over 230,000 miles to the moon, but we finally arrived in lunar orbit on April 19th. Then on April 20th, it was time for John and Charlie to get inside Orion and separate from me and Ken. Once they were on the moon, work began. Over the course of their three EVAs on the lunar surface, John and Charlie set up numerous science experiments and used the Lunar Roving Vehicle to explore nearby sites, collecting lunar rock samples for study back on Earth. One such rock was Big Muley, the largest sample ever returned from the Moon. John and Charlie even found time to perform the ultimate test of the Lunar Roving Vehicle, pushing it to its limits to see how fast it could actually travel with the Lunar Grand Prix. Through John and Charlie's experiments and the samples they would return to Earth, NASA was able to eventually determine that the area was not volcanic in nature as hypothesized. As John and Charlie were exploring the lunar surface, me and Ken remained up in lunar orbit, ready to carry out our mission objectives from there. Ken performed many photographic observations and science experiments using a suite of scientific instruments in my Sims Bay. Together, me and Ken were able to verify the data taken by Apollo 15's command module and provide new information on lunar terrain not previously covered. On April 23rd, John and Charlie blasted off from the lunar surface and reunited with me and Ken in orbit. We jettisoned Orion and set a course back toward Earth. While en route, Ken performed an EVA of his own, retrieving film canisters from my Sims Bay. Then by April 27th, we had made it back to Earth orbit and began atmospheric re-entry. While the heat was intense, my heat shields managed to protect the crew inside as we successfully passed through the atmosphere. When my parachutes deployed, I knew I had done my job. Together, we drifted safely toward the waters below. With my job complete, it was time to think about retirement. In November of 1973, NASA transferred me to the Smithsonian, who delivered me to the Alabama Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. The Alabama Space and Rocket Center, now known as the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, has remained my home for nearly 50 years. Over the years, I have had the privilege to share my unique story with guests at the center. I've even had old friends like Charlie stop by to see me from time to time. While my adventure to space may be history, I have a new and equally significant purpose. For it is the adventures I inspire in those who visit me that will carry my legacy into the future.
1: Casper, having been to the moon, it now spends its time locked in a glass display in Huntsville, with thousands of people gawking at it every day. Well, at least Casper's parachutes occasionally get to travel. For example, in two thousand and nineteen and twenty nineteen, one of the parachutes went to Brisbane. to be spread over the heads of the visitors to the Queensland Museum. And uh, that's where I saw the parachute. More about Nothing So Hidden, the story of Apollo 16, coming up. On FM,
3: online and on June 24-7, this is 88.3 Southern Southern FM.
4: I saw the crescent.
1: And what of the three Apollo 16 astronauts? Having flown two Gemini missions in Earth orbit and been to the moon twice, you might think that John Young's astronaut days would be over. (laughs) But no, he went on to command the first and ninth space shuttle missions, and was in line to command a third, this one to deploy the Hubble Space Telescope, when the STS-51L mission exploded, destroying the Challenger. I, remember, I was present when he was asked, uh, was he going to fly again? Uh, and his wife said, no. <laughs> well, he retired from NASA at the end of 2004 and died in January of 2018 at the age of 87. When Charlie Duke visited us In the Southern FM studios I asked about what he did After Apollo 16 You returned to Earth safely And Then worked You mentioned you worked on the shuttle for a while
0: Uh, Yeah uh, Well uh, next I went to Backup crew on Apollo 17 uh, Which was a surprise Uh, uh, They uh, They had a backup crew on 17 But uh, Uh, they got uh, removed uh, for some uh, problems. And so John Young and and Stu Rooster and I became backup crew for Apollo 17 in, like, uh, late June of 1972. And so we trained till the end of Apollo uh, as backup. And after Apollo was over, then I went to work for Space Shuttle, first in the astronaut office uh, monitoring uh, crew station uh, design, uh, airlock, uh, working on the crew state uh, cockpit layout uh, uh, airlock, and also a little bit with uh, Bruce McCandless on the man maneuvering unit. then I went on into uh, more of a management job, working uh, as a technical assistant to the manager of the of the uh, shuttle program, and then I went into uh, shuttle operations. Uh, NASA wanted me to move to uh, uh take a job in in uh Washington as a deputy administrator for uh legislative affairs but uh uh, I, uh my kids didn't want to go Dottie didn't want to go and uh it was and we'd had such a tough time with our marriage it was going to be just a big problem moving to Washington mm-hmm. so I turned it down and ended up. Uh, then I ended up in shuttle operations when I decided to retire due to a, an opportunity I was presented in business.
1: You decided not to stay on for the shuttle flights and, yeah. and do that, whereas some of the other Apollo astronauts did.
0: Yeah, both guys I was on that went to the moon with did. T.K. Mattingly mm-hmm. flew, I think, the th- third uh, shuttle flight. John Young was the first. Uh, and then a lot of my group stayed on, and they flew uh, shuttles. But uh, uh, I decided to leave. Uh, looking back, uh, I've had a few regrets. Uh, uh, I sometimes wish I'd have stayed around for a couple of years with Space Shuttle and flown at least one of the test flights, or mm-hmm. and I could have done that. But I didn't. And so <clears throat> that was one of the regrets, I guess. Uh, Partial regret, let me put it that way, that uh, that I had that I didn't stay for another six or
1: seven years. And uh, what had he done after leaving NASA? Now, it's nearly 40 years since you left NASA. Mm-hmm. What have you been doing since then?
0: Well, uh, after I, I left NASA, I went into – I didn't have enough time in the military to finish uh, retirement, so I went in – part- time into the military uh, Air Force Reserve, I served at Randolph Air Force Base in uh, um, uh, in, in San Antonio until I retired in nineteen eighty six and but also during that time, I was running uh, beverage business uh, and then I went into some real estate development uh then uh we began to develop our christian ministry uh My wife and i uh had uh, had this encounter with jesus and it was life changing really and it was it, it changed uh, our our marriage and our lives so uh, so profoundly that we just uh, wanted to go tell everybody about it and uh, our uh, our our diocese and our Uh, Parish uh, heard the story and well, you ought to hear this, Charlie Duke. He's got a great story about the moon and then walking with the Lord. So it was sort of walk on the moon, walk with the Mm -hmm. uh, the sun, S O N, and uh, uh, and we're still doing that now. We've been all over the world uh, uh, sharing our faith and uh, hopefully inspiring a lot of a lot of people. And one of the reasons we're here in uh, uh, Melbourne uh, now is to speak to uh, schools. Uh, uh, we've been uh, uh, to, let's see, seven schools, uh, uh, no, eight schools now. We got f- six, more, six more to do before we depart and spoke to two groups today, both 1,000 kids. And, uh, you know, if you can change one life and motivate one person, it's all worth it. So uh, uh, we um, uh, do that. And also, I... I am involved now in motivational speaking. I do stuff for uh, organizations, uh, associations, individual companies. Work for the Omega Watch, uh, Embraer, the Brazilian airplane maker. And I do, uh, so there I speak to management teams. And it's teamwork, uh, delivering under pressure, uh, importance of thorough planning, preparation, and you do good planning and preparation; the outcome usually works out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, because you can handle all contingencies, you can handle everything. And so, uh, I I found that very motivating to me. Now,
1: now, d- how do you find these school children here in Melbourne have been receiving your message?
0: Tremendous! Uh, everybody is listening. Uh, most of my audience is uh, from uh, like. Uh, uh, teenagers from like thirteen to eighteen uh, and uh, though I've spoken to one uh younger group uh and everybody just sort of sit there and 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 thoroughly uh entertained and excited and the The girls seem to be more excited than the boys you know they're more uh exuberant and more uh demonstrative of their uh emotions than guys are. Uh, and so, but everybody gives me a good uh, standing—not a standing ovation, but a good ovation—and and, and uh, many have come up. Said it's best assembly we've ever had, and and so thank you for coming. So I've been very pleased with the response.
1: At the time he talked with the space show in 2014, there was a debate raging on whether we should go back to the moon or press on to Mars. And the Obama administration was even advocating going to an asteroid. There's been a, an argument, of course, whether we should go back to the moon before Mars or do asteroids. What are your thoughts on that?
0: I think we ought to go to moon, go to the moon uh, again, and build a, 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 a build a station, or or moon base, whatever you want to call it, and there we develop the long the systems that can last for long duration. Because if we went directly to Mars without any history and experience on these systems, you're on your own. Yeah. And you, uh, you you can't get any help from Houston at Mars. You know, it's too long of transmission. And uh, uh, so you're autonomous. And we need systems that we have tested, relied upon, uh, and developed, and I think that the moon is the place to do that, and plus we can do there 's a lot of benefits of going back to the moon science wise and uh, Jack Schmidt wants to go start learning how we can uh, mine helium three on the moon, which is a tremendous uh, power uh, power source, which eventually might mm-hmm. be useful here on earth so okay. but i 'm cool. not much on a on the uh, asteroid mission. Uh, I, don't, I think that 's a waste
1: personally and Charlie Duke and John Young were both appreciative of the support Australia gave to the Apollo program
4: Well, I think Charlie we, we should let you go because you 've had a, a long long day and a long long week. Um, we yeah. really do appreciate you coming in and spending time with us well
0: uh, andrew peter i 've really enjoyed being with you all. We had a nice uh, dinner together the other night, and uh, uh, thank you for your support of the space program. Uh, uh, Australia has probably one of the most active support uh, 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 groups of space, uh, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you all for all you've done, and good to be here with you. You've got an open invitation you anytime you're back. Thank, Thank you, Charlie. You.
1: Thank you okay. for joining us on the Space Show, Charlie. Appreciate
0: it.
6: We are here to celebrate the uh, 25th anniversary of human beings landed on the moon. I think everybody here can be very proud of the contributions that Australia's made to space exploration and the Deep Space Tracking Network. Uh, I believe that there was even more important things going on back in those days, and Mike didn't mention them. Uh, When they were trying to land on the moon coming down, they had uh, radar alarms and they were overloading their computers, and uh, the fact that that information was coming back to Houston and we were able to work that whole problem out and successfully land those people is in large part due to, due to uh, Honeysuckle and Parks having that information available and being able to use it in real time and solve those problems. So I think everybody in Australia can be very proud of that contribution because uh, on the first landing going to the moon, if you have to abort, it really look bad on your record. <laughs>
1: And Duke now lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, aged 86. Apollo 16 command module Ken Mattingly made 64 orbits of the moon, becoming one of only 24 people to have flown to the moon. He went on to fly two space shuttle missions, one in 1982 and the other in 1985. After leaving NASA in 1985, Mattingly worked for several aerospace companies. Wikipedia says that, at age 86, he is working in Virginia at a company called Systems Planning and Analysis. The American Space Museum and Spacewalk of Fame in Titusville gives the same information, although this may just be a copy of the wiki entry. Now you may be wondering why we have called this program about Apollo sixteen nothing so hidden. Well the first clue is that Apollo sixteen landed in the highland region of the Moon near the crater Descartes or Descartes. This forty eight kilometer diameter crater was named after Rene Descartes, a French philosopher and mathematician. This extract from the official public release movie of the Apollo 16 m- movie.
3: As Young and Duke rode the bucking rover to the lunar formation called Stone Mountain, NASA geologist Farouk L. Baz wrote on a blackboard on Earth, There is
8: nothing so far removed from us
3: to be beyond our reach,
0: or so hidden, that we cannot discover it. Rene Descartes as John Young would later remark, Apollo 16
3: would certainly help prove that Rene Descartes was right. Almost like
1: a field, During that homeward bound press conference, John Young had this to say.
6: Well, let me uh, just say one thing, Hank, and that is... Uh, Mr. Descartes said it. He said, uh, there's nothing so far removed from us as to be beyond our reach or so hidden that we cannot discover it. And uh, you don't know, Descartes was a French mathematician and philosopher for whom the region was named. And I guess uh, really the story of our mission so far is we've been out testing this theory. My personal assessment of where we are right now is as soon as we get the rocks back in the LRL, uh, will be making headway to proven he was right.
1: And this caused NASA to title its public release documentary Nothing So Hidden. And we here on The Space Show have followed suit. If you want to know more about Apollo 16 or of the other Apollo missions, then a good starting point is Eric Jones's Apollo Lunar Surface Journal. This deals with what was said and done on the moon. Space Association President Peter Iwood had this conversation with Eric. I'm sitting here with
4: uh, Eric Jones. Eric, welcome to The Space Show.
8: Thank you very much, Peter.
1: Eric,
4: you um, are the um, editor of the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal. Could you tell us a little bit about that and, and how it came into being?
8: Yeah, I've been working on it for over a quarter century back in uh, 89 I had a chance to talk to Jack Schmidt who flew on 17 who was an occasional visitor to the Los Alamos uh, scientific laboratory uh, where I worked for 30 years and uh, I was interested in how work got done on the moon. I'd come to Australia for the first time three years earlier in 86 on a on professional leave at Melbourne university was interested in how the Australian economy emerged from the prison colony and had read, Geoffrey uh, Jeffrey Blaney's the tyranny of distance and understood that the cost of getting things here from Europe or even from India, uh, had a lot to do with how the Australian economy got cracked up. And, uh, a future settlement on the moon is going to have larger difficulties of the same kind. One of the things that I did when I was here was start digging into the journals of Captain Cook, uh, which were the, the modern edition of them, was uh, put together by a New Zealand h- historian named J.C. Beaglehole, who basically spent his life work on... Uh, exploration of the Pacific and cook's career he edited the journals uh, in preparation for writing a life of cook and the journals are just an absolutely marvelous research resource about um, that wonderful period of exploration and Cook was very much a man of the age he whilst his he was... Like, the, like most of the astronauts, he was military, he'd grown up in the coal trade, but he was interested in the scientific work that was being done by banks and others. So anyway, the, I started getting a notion, maybe even before I talked to Jack, about using the transcripts from the Apollo missions as the basis of a journal, emphasizing because of my own interests uh, and because of interest in how a lunar settlement might support itself in the work that was done by the crews, uh, how they trained for it, uh, things of that kind. So Jack and I talked about it for an hour or so that first time and got together a few months later at his uh, Albuquerque office. And went through a bit of the journal, or through a bit of the transcripts, stopping frequently so I could ask him what the hell's going on and how did you train for that, what was easy about it, what was hard about it. We decided that it was worth doing, not only for the whole of Apollo 17, but he offered to write a letter of recommendation to the other crew so we could go through... All six of the missions, or at least the lunar surface operations.
4: So these transcripts, the, the audio was already transcribed, I uh, presume, by NASA and, and existed in the NASA um, archives, and, and your idea was to, to publish them on a website to make them publicly accessible
8: or more easily publicly accessible. Is that the content? The audio from the missions was transcribed basically in real time, the NASA Public Affairs had a crew of typists behind a curtain in the in the main auditorium, and they would uh, be given tapes from the audio so they could type it up pretty much in real time for the media. Because the media, of course, wanted, particularly on 11, wanted to have instant access to, to transcripts. And then later on, the, the transcripts were of great use to the geologists uh, trying to work working with the samples that the crews collected. Okay, so
4: so um, so that that's the origin of the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal. So how how did you um, how did you envision structuring it? How did you? What was your concept of of putting it together? how it would be used, how it would continue to to grow as it has for so many years since that time?
8: What the journal was, what was in it, evolved over the 30 years and is still evolving. But the first and most important task was to contact the other astronauts and arrange to meet with them, usually at their office or occasionally at their home. When I started out, I simply had copies of the transcripts, a copy for each of us, copies of the audio so we could listen to it and correct the transcript as we went along. That was it, basically. I started acquiring background documents, and the guys had su- souvenirs in the form of manuals and photographs and what have you, uh, which was very helpful. I was remarkably ignorant about Apollo uh, in 1989. I you know, watched the missions on the tube but in terms of the detail and what was involved in the training and in what they did on the moon I was clueless and they were very generous in confronting my ignorance and helping me understand what was going on. So in the early 90s I continued to work with Jack Schmidt and he and I spent probably 15 to 20 days together over a few years, he got Cernan involved, probably spent oh a dozen days with uh, with Jean over the years uh, going through the mission and eventually, I acquired a set of the uh, videotapes fellow named Larry Haskin at uh, Washington University in St Louis had compiled those, and that was a big help couldn't have couldn't have done The journal as it now exists, without those, uh, without those videotapes. So we would sit down and go through it. Jack and Jean, in the beginning, then I had three days with Neil and Buzz in Santa Fe at a hotel, and uh, five days with Pete now, which was a hoot, a laugh a minute. Pete is a very funny guy. Spent uh, two weeks at. Ed Mitchell's home in Florida, two separate weeks. A little time with Jim Irwin at his office in um, Colorado Springs, but I regret that Jim really was quite busy in his uh, ministry and, and uh, his public speaking tour, so we, we didn't get together very often. Dave Scott was a huge help. He and I would get together in Santa Fe uh, for a couple of days every once in a while. And later, with Charlie Duke at his home, pretty much had it covered. Uh, John Duke, John Young declined to participate, as did Shepard. But other than that, I had I had the full attention of nine of them.
4: So, so what did that work involve? Did it did it involve going through and maybe correcting some of what was written, as opposed to what was actually said? But but were you sort of Asking them questions, clarifying what they were doing at this point, and then writing notes and and adding that to the the
8: journal itself. Absolutely, trans. I of course tape recorded those conversations that I had with the astronauts. We would stop frequently, either because they wanted to explain something, or I had a question for them about what they were doing and how they trained for it. And those conversations are were were. Transcribed after the sessions were finished, and those have been added to the uh, the journal online.
4: Okay, so you said you recorded those conversations. There's the NASA Oral History Series. Is that your recordings, or is that something totally different?
8: No the uh, the Nash- the NASA Oral History Program, uh, the NASA Johnson Oral History Program, is a separate process. Those are shorter conversations. Uh, with not only the astronauts, but lots of other people who worked at NASA. Those are very helpful. But my conversations with the astronauts were focused strictly on lunar surface operations, what they were doing in real time, and how they trained for it. And do those recordings still
4: exist? And is there any plans or do you have permission to, at some stage, publish
8: them or put them up online somewhere? I think a lot of people are interested. Uh, I know people are interested in them. I'm reluctant to release those yet. Most of the time, when the guys had something they wanted to tell me that wasn't for public consumption, they would ask that I turn the tape recorder off, which I was happy to do. One of the people who has helped me with the journal is my good friend Ken Glover in Ottawa, Canada, who digitized all those tapes for me. So they are in a safe location, and uh, i th- I haven't decided when I'm going to uh, release those i guess I guess the sad reality
4: of of, of life of, of of the time since Apollo is that you know one by one, these people that walked on the moon are, are leaving us. so I guess in some cases in many ways, those recordings are a real a piece of history in their own right in addition to the lunar surface journal itself. And it's it's wonderful they still exist and you've preserved them and, and hopefully one day they'll come out when,
8: when the time is right. And when the time is right is the operative part. Uh, the guys grew to understand after we had spent some time together that I was serious about understanding the missions, respectful of their privacy, and um, willing to talk about... Things off the off the record that some of which get discussed in uh, their their conversations with Andy Chaiken for Man on the Moon, and others show up in their books, but it wasn't my job to do more than talk about what they did, how they did it
1: that was the space show's Peter Owen talking with Eric Jones, the editor of the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal. And uh, yes, Eric is now a proud Australian living here in Victoria. Now, if you want to know more about Apollo 16 or of the other Apollo missions, then a good starting point is, as we've just noted, Eric Jones' Apollo Lunar Surface Journal. But if you want to know details about what was said or done on the way to the moon, in orbit around the moon, or on the way back to Earth, then head to the Apollo Flight Journal. In addition, Colin McKellar's Honeycycle Creek site has an incredible wealth of material on Australia's involvement in tracking the Apollo missions. That's where we got the audio of John Saxon talking with the crew of Apollo 16, and where you can hear the full unedited audio and read a transcript. And uh, we're going to hear from John Saxon after these messages.
3: 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. If you-
1: On last week's program, we told you the story of how John Saxon became the only Australian to talk to someone on the moon. At a recent Space Association of Australia meeting, President Peter Elwood introduced John to the members. Uh,
4: next, we're going to hear from John Saxon. John was the operations supervisor at Honeysuckle Creek at the Tracking Station Air. He supported all the Apollo missions at the operations console and John also spoke to John Young and Charlie Duke on the lunar surface. If he gets time, he might tell you about that. Uh, he wasn't supposed to, but he stepped in and, um, and had to t- fill in the gap. We'll hand over to John Sax now.
9: Um. What, I, what I'm preparing to do is to give you a flavour of the Honeysuckle Station. Yeah, well, uh, this, is, this is telling everybody what they already knew, and that is that you need three stations around the Earth to give you some coverage of the Moon as soon as they're beyond geosynchronous orbit, actually a little bit below that. And equally so, these were the three stations and here was Sunny down there, Goldstone in the Mojave Desert and Madrid, just just up in the hills above Madrid, really. And it was opened by yet another Prime Minister, Harold Holt. Yes, Harold Holt uh, visited the station after he had opened it officially. With uh, Anyhow, that was in uh, 17th of March, 1967. The station itself was built mostly in 1966. I arrived there after spending some time in... Uh, the uh, network training center in, uh, in Greenbelt, Maryland, uh, which I went to before I actually emigrated out to Australia. So I had to fly from England to Greenbelt to go for the um, training, which was called the manned space flight uh, operations supervisor training or something similar. And uh, then I had to fly back to England in order to emigrate down to Australia. Picturesque natural surroundings and bearing an
3: equally picturesque name, the Honeysuckle Creek Tracking Station. Dominated by its saucer-shaped radio antenna, 85 feet in diameter, it's the sixth such station to be constructed in Australia and places this country second only to America as the Western world's most important space tracking country. Prime Minister Holt performs the official opening ceremony. Built by the United States National Aeronautics and Space Administration at a cost of two million dollars. Honey Suckle Creek is operated by Australian firms employing homegrown scientists, engineers, and technicians. Honey Suckle Creek is virtually an earthbound ear to a man on the moon, being one of three stations destined to guide the Apollo project to a man landing on our nearest space neighbour, scheduled for 1970. Together with the deep space packing station at Tidbin Villa, 14 miles to the west, it will play a vital role (laughs) in the critical final stages of the moon landing. Mr. Holt sets the antenna in motion at the press of a button. Honey Suckle Creek
9: another step in man's most exciting journey a quarter of a million miles into space this was sort of ground plan of rough site plan antenna up on the hill the operations building and down below was the power generation building at all the diesel generators and um also many little offices or workshops for Electricians, air conditioning people, motor mechanics, huge number of uh, people with skills in those sort of areas. The operations building, which was sort of a one and a half storeys high ground level, then up some stairs into the operations room up above. I should just mention that this was the, it says crew room, but actually it was a cafeteria. And... Right next, which was a 24-7 operation. And right next door to it was a couple of bedrooms, which were almost impossible to sleep in because of all the noise that came out of the cafeteria 24-7. Anyhow, occasionally you've got a few hours. I did sleep on site quite a few times, or try to. And up here, we've got the main operations area. First of all, a unified S-band area, which is the same as the area at Tidman Villa, which is controlled for the transmitters, receivers, pointing in the antenna, and tracking data originating in all the rest of it. Next door to it was the telemetry operation area. Uh, we had three, three decommutators for the spacecraft telemetry data, and we could... The great thing about it was in manned space flight, you could actually see all the activity that was going on, see all the uh, temperatures, pressures, and many things like the astronaut respiration and heartbeat and stuff like that, which was probably the most important part. Uh, Computer area, quite a lot of stuff in the computer area I'll show you in a minute. We had a hatch going through to the communications area so they could pass through um, teletype messages and this type of thing. And that was called the communications switch room, but it was really the wire room mostly, where all the intercoms, every position had different sets of buttons on it and they were all wired up in there. And really what the operator is doing, he can drive the antenna through the acquisition point where we expect the spacecraft to appear. And then um, once it does appear, it's a sort of a dance between him and the receiver operators. When the receivers are locked up on the spacecraft, then he can select automatic track and the the antenna will then follow the spacecraft. Pretty cunning system, actually, because they had four feed horns pointing down the ball side of the antenna. And um, the whole idea of the servo system was to balance the output of those four feed horns so the antenna was always focused directly on the spacecraft. Controls for the power amplifiers, transmitters, and there was some chart recorders which were very handy at times to find out what actually happened. This was the ranging equipment. The ranging was interesting subsystem in that this guy was the only guy who really understood it. It was used a system of transmitting the pseudo-random number code. That was a random number code which repeated. So it was called the pseudo-random numbers. And uh, when when they were reflected back from the spacecraft, they were compared and you could measure the spacecraft distance to an accuracy of, I think, two or three meters at lunar distance took that over a period of time, you got the velocity of the spacecraft and so on and so on. Accelerations in all axes in the end. This was uh, one and a half decommutators in the telemetry area. It's a sort of simulation rack there, but that's one of the decommutators going down here. This is another one. Get all this stuff in one chip in your phone these days, I'm sure. Also, there were three of these in the telemetry area, plus TV equipment for when we got TV from the moon, plus uh, recorders, analog tape recorders. This was the uh, computer area. So there was a lot of gear there, and this was one of the main computers. We had two of those, one for telemetry and one for command data. Item in the middle was called the expanded memory unit, we also had paper tape drives, you name it, data tapes for driving the antenna along the expected track of the spacecraft and another one for simulations and other purposes. One of these computers, I can tell you, was, I think, in uh, a two-microsecond uh, cycle time, had uh, something like 16K, or it, it might have been... It might have been uh, 32K of 30-bit memory and lots of input-output channels. Did a lot of parallel computer ca- computing going on in there, including handling the tape handlers and many other functions. Uh, this was the operations console. Now, I should say something about this because, basically, it uh, was where Mike and I worked. I was lucky enough to do all the Apollo missions there plus Skylab, plus uh, various other bits and pieces from that console. I should say that uh, around the manned spaceflight network, it was expected that all the equipment would be the same in all the stations, so that when they sent out instructions and all the rest of it, uh, they would know uh, how the stations were laid out and what the controls were and all the rest of it. This console, after Mike didn't finished with it, and bore absolutely no resemblance to any other console in the uh, manned spaceflight
1: network. Speaking to the Space Association of Australia, that was John Saxon, who uh, had various jobs at the Honeysuckle Creek tracking site that's in the Australian Capital Territory. Well, this has been the final episode of our three-part series Nothing So Hidden, the story of Apollo 16.